Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the show. Sorry for the brief hiatus, but I am back tonight and live. What we're going to be doing tonight is talking about the Clinton Foundation. The reason why I'm doing this uh, is not for lack of press. You see Clinton Foundation in lots of headlines. You see it all the time now because there are some serious questions about what's going on with this organization. And if Hillary Clinton abused her power when she was the Secretary of State, in using the Clinton Foundation uh, in a pay-for-play, you know, favors exchange, all that stuff. So I'm not really going to be talking about that, not necessarily the things that are in the headlines. You can, you know, read those yourself. What I really wanted to do was to talk about the organization, really, I mean, beginning with what nobody is really talking about, and that is, you know, not what it is, what the Clintons say it is, what the Clintons, well... Let's start all the way, you know, basically 20 years ago. What the Clinton Foundation started as was simply a nonprofit, you know, a 501c3 that was made to really manage Bill Clinton's national archives, you know, like all of his stuff in like a library in Arkansas. In Arkansas, That's what it was created as. And as, as anyone who's had any experience with nonprofit work, you have to very clearly define what you're going to be using a charity for. And that's what they said. That's what was on their application. And that has really never been updated. So all the other things that they're doing with the Clinton Foundation, be it charitable, which is very few things, and money laundering, which is really the majority of what it's doing these days, none of that is, obviously, they're not going to define the illegal stuff, but they haven't defined any of the legal stuff either. But... What the Clinton Foundation really is that I, I really haven't seen mentioned in a headline or a story or, or anything. I mean, here's what it is. It is a solution to a very big problem that world leaders, not just, not just here, all over the world, all, they have a really, really big problem. And here's what that problem is. I mean, let's put it just in the, in the context of a, a president, right? President of the United States. Now, you don't get paid very much to be president, but the perks are obviously enormous. You have an armed detail everywhere you go, the Secret Service. You get limousines, bulletproof limousines to escort you from here to there. You need to fly somewhere. You get the best private plane in the world. You get Air Force One. Well, maybe it's not the best, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty plush. You get to attend highbrow events with celebrities and wealthy people. You know the deal. Like, And obviously, you don't have to pay for housing, um, as the Clintons did not. They lived in the White House and uh, were technically homeless for eight years. No, that was, that was their home. They did. So you get all these perks, right? You are living a lifestyle. And listen, I'm not saying it's... It, yeah, it's a hard job. And there's a lot of jobs that are not nearly as hard to pay much better. But the, the, there's no job that gives you the perks that you get from being president of the United States. Now, when you're no longer the president, except for Secret Service, which I believe you get for, for the rest of your life, other than that, you lose everything else. You got to pay for a house. No more free luxury transportation. Certainly, the, you know, the least, no more Air Force One, no more Marine One, no more or anything, no more any of that. All you get is Secret Service, which is which is still pretty good, but you don't get any of that other stuff. Now, all across the world, presidents and prime ministers and whatever, you know, chancellors, people who are in charge of countries all over the world have this same problem, and maybe even more so. I don't even think most of them get, uh, you know, like a Secret Service-like arm detail for this or that. They lose everything, too. You're, so, so you're going from becoming very accustomed to a certain lifestyle to four or eight years later, it all goes away. The Clinton Foundation solves that problem, not just for the Clintons. They are, listen, they're not stupid. They might, they, they don't have a moral compass, but they're not stupid. They thought big with the Clinton Foundation. Not only did they say, we are going to solve our own problems after Bill is out after eight years, but we're going to solve 
the problems that these world leaders have all over the world. And this is how it works. What they were able to do is set up this non this this 501c3 nonprofit with basically no oversight because they're the Clintons. Now, ostensibly, these things are supposed to be audited, uh, you know, reviewed by the government, all that stuff. Of course, that doesn't happen for the Clintons. Everyone knows that you can have a major FBI investigation over extremely illegal activity and get away with it. They have also gotten away with the Clinton Foundation for the last 20 years. And the only question is, are they going to get are they going to get away with it for the next two months? A betting a betting man would say yes, but there is hope. There are people looking. There have been people looking into this for years, but there are federal prosecutors at this point looking into this, and maybe something will happen. Will something happen by November eighth? Don't get your hopes up, but it's possible. So what they have been able to do since they have this 501c3 that has virtually no oversight is what they've done is they have been able to break every possible rule and law associated with nonprofits with no repercussions. What they have used the foundation for, given that they don't have any oversight, is a multi-billion dollar slush fund. Now, if you believe what the Clintons say, which nobody does, but if you do, what they have said is that they have taken in $2 billion in, air quotes, donations to the Clinton Foundation for the supposed charity work that they do, which they spend next to nothing on. It's far under 10% of, of the incoming of what they say is coming in, which is $2 billion. Now, when you look at all of the people who actually have donated from them, you see some of these people, now some of them are private individuals, they don't have to declare much of anything if they don't want to, especially if they're, um, you know, foreign, if they're not in America. But a lot, of, a lot of people and governments do. There have been governments from all over the world, the UK, Norway, Australia, that now these Western diplomatic country, uh, uh, democratic countries they have to actually write down what they have donated. And the numbers that they have said, because they have to, because they are they are much more accountable than the Clintons are to our government, they have to disclose how much they have given. And the numbers that just, if you just look at those three countries, the numbers that they have given, that they have written down, far exceed what the Clintons say actually came in. Now, this could be, all sussed out if they had an audit, but for some reason the IRS doesn't want to audit them. Anyway, if you add up these countries and then all the bad ones too, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Qatar, I mean, all these horrible dictatorships all around the world pouring money into the Clinton Foundation, all of these Western democratic countries, all of these private individuals, all of this money that has come in and you compare the Clinton's number $2 billion to the number that is reported just by the people that have to report it. That number is $100 billion. The Clintons say $2 billion. Everyone else who is given says $100 billion. That is a discrepancy of $98 billion. And no audit. This is really easy information to find. Yet the IRS does nothing. So, I mean, obviously they've been doing this. They're going to, the more brazen they are, the more they get away with, of course they're going to do this. I mean, listen, charities are good. There's a lot of great charities out there. But especially people who are familiar with vaping, you know that a lot of these big so-called public health organizations that are 501c3, you know what they do with this money. You know it's a scam. There are good charities out there, but the opportunity for malfeasance with a 501c3 is a lot more than with 
a private for-profit company. It should be the other way around because, I mean, this is a this is an organization ostensibly that you know they they exist to help people to 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 help the disenfranchised, to help the poor, to help the cancer patients, whoever it is. There should be more of a spotlight on them because people who are giving to them, you know, that people are pretty generous. I mean, I'm, we're going to go over some examples, but like people want to do good, you know, people are generous. There is a huge industry in this country around 501c3s. Now, the Clinton Foundation is a little bit different. Now, you, now you're involving actual states, international states and international oligarchs, as well as private donors. But most of these, most of these companies, at least in America, most of these non, non-for-profit corporations, they are mostly just funded by people who are passionate about a cause and want to do something good. That's where most of the money comes from, not from, not for Clinton Foundation, but for most other charities. So there should be a really big spotlight shine on them because if you're doing something that, if you're up to no good, I mean, you're defrauding the nicest people in the world. And I think the government does a somewhat decent job on other 501c3s, but they have been completely delinquent with the Clinton Foundation. So what about that $98 billion discrepancy? Where does that money go? We don't know. We just don't know because they have complete autonomy to do whatever they want without an audit. Well, what would I do if I had $98 billion to hide? I'd probably send it to the Cayman Islands. And that's a record you can't track. I'm not saying it definitely, I'm not saying it all went to the Cayman Islands, but it's highly likely that they're using offshore banking, uh, maybe Swiss bank accounts, but that's less likely. But, you know, Caribbean banking is a really good place to stash money. And that's what they're probably doing. Where, wherever it is, it's not in their coffers here. And we're still waiting for the audit. Um, the Clinton Foundation has been involved with several really high-profile scams. And the first one that I want to go over, I wouldn't even call it a scam because that word just doesn't do it justice. I would call it a full-fledged rape of a country. And that country is Haiti. I want to talk a little bit about what happened with the earthquake in Haiti, which was in January of 2010, so about six and a half years ago. Now, the Clintons have always kind of had their hooks into, into Haiti because... It makes sense if you are a corrupt politician, you want to make friends with other corrupt politicians. For It's very sad that Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world, also has one of the most corrupt governments. So it's nearby. They have a corrupt government. The Clintons were friends with them far earlier than 2010. But it wasn't until the earthquake where the Clintons really cashed in hard using the Clinton Foundation to take this horrible natural disaster, probably one of the worst of our times, and just to print money from it. The earthquake was massive, not just in size. It was a 7.4, I think. But it was so massive because it was so close to one of the most populous areas of Haiti, and it killed 250,000 people, leaving millions more homeless, destitute, and diseased. Haiti already had a decimated, or not a, well, they had a bad infrastructure. I mean, lots of villages without electricity and running water or uh, plumbing. I mean, it's a third world country, you know? It was in bad shape before the earthquake. The earthquake just completely decimated it. Now, the good news was that it was so bad that there was a huge outpouring of donations and benevolence and charity from all over the world. About 14 to $16 billion of aid from people like you and me, as well as other organizations and countries. 14 to $16 billion came into Haiti. Now, just to put that in perspective, Haiti is a poor country. Their GDP is about $10 billion a year. 
So they got in one shot, in one massive cash injection, they got almost double of their yearly GDP. Now, if that money was put to good use, Haiti could have actually, I mean, you can't replace the, the dead and the, and the destruction that causes to families, but, but at least the infrastructure, the, the housing, job, cre like you're doubling their GDP in one year in one lump sum. It could have, it could have really brought, I'm not saying it's a good trade-off for an earthquake, but it really could have brought this country, you know, kind of out of the third world with that much money. And the reason that it didn't is because of Bill and Hillary Clinton. Hillary was Secretary of State when the earthquake in Haiti hit. Uh, Bill Clinton was a special envoy to Haiti uh, via the UN. And in addition to that, once the earthquake hit, Bill Clinton was named the co-chair of the Interim Haiti Recovery uh, Commission. So you got her, Secretary of State, and him. He's on some new thing, who some new government agency that has a bunch of powers, and he's also on the UN with his hooks in this. So they're firmly in charge. Now what Haiti wanted was what they needed. They needed new roads, new buildings, and new infrastructure. This is very logical. These are the things that you need after a natural disaster. But that is not what the Clintons had in mind. Or I should rephrase that. It's the Clintons didn't have the Clintons had one thing in mind and one thing only. We want to get paid. So what they did was whatever the highest bidder did, and the highest bidder being the highest donors to the Clinton Foundation. This was obvious immediately, and Haitian leaders and the people immediately complained that they were completely shut out of the decision-making process on how all of these billions of dollars were going to be spent in their country. 37, well, let me go over that one later. Let me go over uh, the first project that was started in Haiti when the earthquake hit. It was, um, it was actually two things, but by the same company. The uh, Caracol Textile Company and the Caracol Industrial Park. Now, $124 million were earmarked for them. Here was the problem. The earthquake in Haiti hit right, right outside of Port-au-Prince, the extreme southern air. The, the extreme south of Haiti, all the way down at the south. All of the damage was down there. All of the help was needed down there. The north side of Haiti was completely unaffected. Where did the Caracol Industrial Park and the Caracol Textile Company want to set up base? In the north. And so they did. They were able to make textiles and sell tariff-free clothing to companies like The Gap, Target, and Walmart, who set up in the industrial park and who also benefited in America. Employees got sweatshop wages, and the 60,000 jobs that were promised never materialized. There were about 5,000. Other contracting companies for building and other things, we'll go through a few. Uh, for example... Um, they need, you know, obviously the earthquake devastated hundreds of thousands of homes. So contracting companies were selected to build them. Now there were a bunch of contracting companies that had a lot of experience building low income housing. None of those companies were selected because they didn't donate anything to the Clinton foundation. Instead, it was a complete direct one-to-one -one Whoever gave the most money got the contracts. There was one project that was earmarked for 15,000 homes to be built for $53 million. The company that was selected to do it had no experience building low-income housing. They built all kinds of other different things. They were, they were never involved in rebuilding a country after a natural disaster, but they gave the Clinton Foundation $15 million. So 
What happened when they got this contract to build 15,000 homes for $53 million? They ended up building 2,600 homes. Less than a quarter of the 15,000 they were contracted for. And instead of spending $53 million, they spent $90 million. A complete disaster. But they weren't punished. They still got paid. Because they donated to the Clintons. Another example. Uh, Dennis O'Brien, who is a very uh, wealthy Irish businessman, donated $10 million to the Clinton Foundation. And because of that, company he was involved with by the name of Digicel, who promised to enable transfers of money directly to the Haitian people on their mobile phones, they were given a huge contract to set up there and get this project going. In addition to the $10 million that he had previously given to the Clinton Foundation, just before the contract was approved, Digicel paid Bill Clinton personally $225,000 for a speech in Jamaica. Sound familiar with what Hillary was doing in Wall Street? It's the same exact thing. Before all this Clinton Foundation stuff really, really kicked up, you know, or they really started leveraging it, Bill Clinton was getting like twenty or thirty thousand dollars for a speech as soon as the Clinton Foundation, as soon as Hillary was in the Secretary of State, and they could really use the Clinton Foundation to leverage favors from the State Department. His rates shot up from twenty, thirty thousand dollars a speech to like what you're seeing here, two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars for a speech. As soon as he gave that speech in Jamaica for Digicel, they were awarded the project. Unfortunately, that great idea for transferring money directly to Haitian people on cell phones didn't happen on time. And by the time that was set up, the world kind of had already given their money and moved on. And those donations that came directly to people on in, in Haiti on their cell phones through Digicel were paltry. It was too late. Another example of gross malfeasance from the Clinton Foundation was in the industry of gold mining now Haiti I'm sorry Haiti has gold uh, but they did not issue any new contracts for gold mining in over 50 years um, probably not a great idea uh, when you have a natural resource you should get it out I don't know if it was because of environmental reasons or conservation or, or whatever but they the fact of the matter is they did not have issue any contracts for gold mining in over 50 years well now they had a crisis they have this earthquake and they need money, so they agreed to issue new contracts for gold mining. One of the companies, well, actually the only company that got a contract for gold mining was a company called VCS Mining. This was a very new company. They had next to no experience in gold mining and only very little experience in copper mining. They were awarded the contract A couple of days after Hillary's brother, a man by the name of Tony Rodham, joined VCS Mining on the board of directors. Taking a quick look at Tony Rodham's resume, he used to be a repo man, a prison guard, and a private investigator. He was not on any boards of mining companies. He doesn't know anything about mining. But somehow, he got appointed to the board of directors for the startup mining company, and all of a sudden, they are awarded the contract. Just going back through some of the other things that, that happened from just, just the gross malfeasance and allocations of funds that these people really needed. I mean, my God, their lives, their homes, everything was destroyed. And the Clintons leveraged every possible situation to make sure that their donors got paid and they got to do whatever they want no matter how little it actually helped the victims there was a yet another foundation that was set up to help haiti this was called the clinton bush haiti fund yet another organization they had two offices one in little rock arizona and one in dallas texas 
$32 million that was given from, that was, that was supposed to be sent from the Clinton Foundation to the Clinton-Bush-Haiti funds to be used in projects that they were supposed to oversee, the Clinton-Bush-Haiti fund. $32 million was sent not to Little Rock, not to Dallas, but to a post office box in Maryland. And after that, the money literally disappeared. Nobody knows where it went. I have a good idea. I think it went to the Cayman Islands. But getting that money to the Clinton-Bush-Haiti funds, there's only a million dollars that can be traced that came from the Clinton uh, Foundation. Where is that other $31 million? Nobody knows. And the IRS doesn't seem to care to want to know to find out. Now, the Clinton-Bush, uh, the Clinton-Bush-Haiti uh, fund actually got a total of $54 million in donations, not, you know, the 32 of $32 million supposedly was from the Clinton Foundation, and then another couple dozen million from uh, other sources. And, you know, they, a lot of it was was supposed to be for, for all this housing. I mean, still today, six years later, if you look at Haiti, it is no better than the day before the earthquake hit. Some things are better. There's tourism. We'll go through some of the things that are better, but there's still people living in tents without sanitation, lighting, or, or security, or anything. All the money at this point is gone. Let's look at some of the things that these $54 million were actually spent on. $47 million were earmarked to help get help Haitians get mortgages. They needed the money immediately to build homes. A mortgage is something these people are not talking about. They don't have water, electricity, or a roof over their head. You're setting up something to... Help them get mortgages. A million dollars was was uh, set aside for insurance products. That's that's like closing the barn door after the horse has already gotten out. They don't have housing. They don't have water. They don't have toilets. They don't need insurance. They don't have anything to insure. Millions of dollars were diverted to microfinancing and business advice to small entrepreneurs. Again. I don't want to repeat, these, these people are not thinking about setting up a new business. They're thinking about when their next meal is coming. $350,000 was used to upgrade a tourist hotel. $2 million was spent to complete another hotel, this one a luxury hotel. The hotel was abruptly halted. The, the construction process was abruptly halted following the earthquake, but they were able to get to $2 million to this hotel to complete the 130-room Oasis Hotel, and it came out beautifully. That project, that worked great. Uh, they put some money aside for cervical cancer screenings. Uh, that's a good thing, but again... These people are worried about, about cholera and dysentery and parasites and, and all kinds of other things after an earthquake. Cervical cancer screening, good idea. What they need right now, no. But it's great for their friends in pharmaceuticals who, of course, donate hand over fist to the Clinton Foundation. $300,000 for a computer lab for the, a computer laboratory for the University of Haiti School of Management. What about sewers, septic tanks? No, no. This is just one of the many, many examples of just abject fuckery on, that, on, the, on behalf of the Clinton Foundation. It's literally, if you look at Haiti, literally what it is, it is Robin Hood in reverse. You are, le you are literally stealing from the poor to pay off your rich friends. It is disgusting. It's not just the Clinton Foundation, and that's just one example. It's also an organization called the Clinton Global Initiative. This is something where they also put, you know, transfer money from one pocket to the other and do all that kind of stuff. But I want to go over one, just one of the disgusting projects 
that we will be paying for very soon. We haven't paid for this yet, but we're about to. Well, we have, but I mean, we're really going to get hit by this soon. This is just one of hundreds of bullshit money laundering schemes that the Clinton Global Initiative has done. This is just one. This is called, this is something called Laureate Education. Uh, Laureate Education was, they started by buying this company. You may have remembered seeing ads for it, you know, well over 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago. Sylvan Learning Labs, they used to run ads on TV. Anyway, they, uh, Laureate Education bought them um, and they were further funded by a $3 billion leveraged cash infusion in 2007. This was when the world was kind of crazy. Uh, the economy was awesome until the 2008 fi financial crisis. They got this money in just before the crisis hit. $3 billion. Um, all from donors. All from... Uh, I'm sorry, all from venture capitalists who were all donors to the Clinton Foundation. They pumped money into Laureate Education. Now, Laureate Education was all of these private universities all around the world, um, but there were a lot here too. And the only requirement, at least for the ones here, for you to go, they did not have any academic, they, they didn't, like you didn't have to have SA, certain SAT scores or, or certain grades or any of that. The only real requirement for you to enroll in Laureate was that if you could acquire federal funding for student loans. So the students who attended Laureate have taken on over $750 million in student debt. Because there were no real academic requirements to enroll, the graduation rate for Laureate is just... 16%, no, not 60, 16, one six, paltry. I mean, there's, there's high schools in the ghetto that have better graduation rate than that. This is all you got to do, get federal loans, which is pretty easy. Again, with a graduation rate of 16% and over $750 million of student loans given out, How much do you think is going to be repaid? 16% of the $750 million? That's the best case scenario, really. And that's not too likely either. I think more like 8%, 10%, maybe a pipe dream. All that money. When the, financial, when the student loan bubble bursts, you will be paying all that. Now, anyway, now going back to Loria, in 2010... Bill Clinton was hired as the honorary chancellor of Laureate to lend credibility to the organization because in 2010, you know, the world wasn't doing so well and neither was Laureate. Putting him, Bill Clinton, as the honorary chancellor led credibility to the organization as they struggled. There is no evidence that he enacted any labor at all for Laureate other than having his picture taken which was used on promotional literature and a voice recording that was used for television and radio advertisements. Bill Clinton was paid $16.5 million as the honorary chancellor for Laureate. This was not, in, this was not disclosed until after he had been the chancellor for five, for over five years. Nobody knew how much he was getting. And then they were somehow forced to 16, $1.5 million for one picture and one voice recording. That is literally all that he did and, of course, allowed his name to be used on the masthead. Um, other investors at Laureate did pay Bill and Hillary huge sums of money for giving speeches at Laureate events, so he did do a little bit more. Now we're at over $20 million, but we're not done yet. The Clintons figured out a way to get paid both from the Laureate equity as well as from the debt suppliers. Bernie Madoff stands in awe at the level of skill employed in this brilliant execution of knavery. 
In 2013, the International Finance Corporation injected another $150 million into Laureate's riskiest class in into Laureate's riskiest class of equity securities just before the end of Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. After the equity infusion cleared, the Clinton Global Initiative and the Clinton Foundation entered into a joint venture with Laureate to create CGI University. The founder of Laureate is also on the board of the International Youth Foundation. The International Youth Foundation also received massive donations from the U.S. from the U.S. Department of State when Hillary was secretary. I'm going to stop right now because your eyes are probably completely glazing over at this point. And that's, that, that is the point of the way they do things. This is a very, very complicated scheme, one of hundreds that they have done. The predators were the venture capitalists, the Clintons, the leaders of supposed charity organizations and some international oligarchs. The institutions employed for the facilitation of cash transfer included Wall Street and the U.S. Department of State. The prey were the students who are now saddled with this debt and only a tiny minority of them ever got a diploma. Future victims will be you and I who will have to subsidize these losses with our tax dollar after the, the bubble that bursts on student debt. And this was all controlled and orchestrated by the Clintons when they were given direct, real, real political power when she was in the State Department as the Secretary of State. Um, if you want to learn more about some of these schemes that the Clintons are involved with, with uh, CGI, Univers well, with, with the Clinton Foundation and with the Clinton Global Initiative, I highly recommend two sources. Uh, and I'll have links to all this stuff and links to everything I've talked about today as well in the replay notes. One of them is through a financial whistleblower by the name of Charles Ortel. Uh, Charles Ortel, O-R-T-E-L. And his website is charlesortel.com. He is very into, and he's been doing this long before Clinton Foundation, he's very into investigating uh, not-for-profit charities who are up to no good. And he's been doing that for a long time. And when he heard about the Clinton Foundation and what they are up to, he dove in. And there is more information available about the Clinton Foundation, what they've done. And I'm talking about raw facts, raw figures um, on his website than really anywhere else. He has been writing letters to the IRS, the SEC, uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, nobody returns his phone calls. I wonder why. Go figure. He has all of this data. No one will look at it. No one will return his phone call. Go figure. I mean, I could go on and on with this. And, you know, I have a few more. I have a couple more pages for notes. I have. I was going to talk about UNITAID, which is a U-N-I-T-A-I-D. It's a consortium of governments, actually that kind of pool their resources for charity work. Yeah, no chance of corruption there. Um, they gave $600 million to the Clinton Foundation, uh, $200 million of it in September of 2006, uh, when they checked to see what their money was doing in December of 2008, they found that of that $200 million they donated in 2006, $100 million just went missing. Can't find it anywhere. It's a, the, the amount of money that is missing, like I said, it is $98 billion. And they are, and still, they have not gotten an audit. Yeah, I will drop the links during after hours. I have a lot of copy pasting to do. So just stay tuned and I'll, uh, I'll supply those for everyone listening on the replay. You'll have all those notes in the replay, in the replay notes, of course. I have spent uh, the better part of an hour talking about really just three scams that they pulled. 
If you want to spend some more time learning uh, learning about these things, I highly, highly recommend watching the documentary. You can get it on YouTube. Very easy to find. It's called Clinton Cash. It's based upon a book. Uh, this guy, Peter, uh, I forgot his last name, but this guy wrote a book called Clinton Cash a few years back. It was a number one uh, bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it is now a movie on YouTube that goes over, uh, I think, about eight, different scams that the Clintons did. Uh, a lot of the information I got about Haiti were from Clinton Cash, but I used some other sources as well. It goes over another, you know, half a dozen or so different scams that they pulled. It's about an hour. I really, really recommend that you watch Clinton Cash. Uh, I could go on, but honestly, it's done really, really well in that documentary. And what I will also be posting in the replay notes are links to very credible media organizations. I'm not talking about right-wing blogs or anything like this. I'm talking about New York Times, ABC News, CBS News, uh, you know, Politico, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, you know, things, you know, I, I purposely selected media organizations that liberals tend to trust. Not that this hasn't been covered by the right-wing press. Also, I'm just, I'm going to give you a bunch of left-wing uh media outlets who have come to all of the same conclusions that I have come to, that Charles Ortel has come to, that Clinton Cash has come to. This organization is so dirty and they are again robbing the rich to, I'm sorry, robbing the poor to pay the rich. It is literally a reverse Robin Hood, not-for-profit 501c3. Now that all this pressure has come out on the Clintons because of the Clinton Foundation and all of the email leaks that are showing directly that the only people who are really getting access to Clinton when she was in the Secretary of State were countries that gave her millions and millions of dollars. So all of that information is public, not just from WikiLeaks, but also from Judicial Watch, from all these Freedom of Information Act requests. It is clear as day this her position as Secretary of State was used to leverage massive donations to the Clinton Foundation, and they're even paying themselves in, in, with, with this corporation, for, with this nonprofit. For example, their daughter, Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea Clinton gets paid $960,000 a year. That is her salary for her position with the Clinton Foundation the only thing anyone can tell that she has ever done is show up at fundraisers and smile for the cameras and shake donors' hands. $960,000 a year for that job. So they're taking this money that comes in and they're actually paying themselves. It's unbelievable. And the reason why you know, even even if you add up all of this stuff that they're paying themselves, that they're sending here, they're sending there, it really only makes up a, not even half of the $98 billion that's missing. And this brings me back to my original point. And the reason why this foundation has been so successful is because it's not just solving their problem. Their problem being, if you're not the president, you don't get all these perks. If you're, you know, it is solving the problems also of leaders around the world, which is why all of these countries, many of them Western democracies, have poured money into the Clinton Foundation because then when they are no longer in power in their countries and they don't have all of the perks that their state gives them, it's a simple transaction from one Cayman Islands bank account to another. And now these people, these heads of state all over the world, can continue their lavish lifestyles even if they don't have access to getting paid two or $300,000 for a speech like the Clintons do. They're good. They're good. Um, I think most of you are probably fatigued by now from Clinton Foundation stuff, so I'm just going to go over a couple of other current events that I thought were really, really weird. Um... The weirdest of all, I think, is that $400 million cash payment to Iran for, for releasing the hostages that they took from us. And this is so interesting to me for, for a few reasons. Number one, 
just the payment. I mean, 400, well, it wasn't $400 million. That would make a little bit more sense because we have very easy access to our own dollars. We can just print them whenever we want, which the government is doing mightily. No, it was $400 million worth of euros and Swiss francs. So how that exactly happened, I would love to see that paper trail. How does the money, I mean, nobody just gave us $400 million worth of euros and Swiss francs. Now, good luck getting that information from the Swiss, but from from the EU, well, maybe just as much luck getting it from them or whoever supplied it. I don't know. But this cash is completely clean, taped up and shrink-wrapped, shrink wrapped, put on pallets and put on an airplane and dropped off to Iran. And only after that money was transferred from one plane to the other were our hostages released. I mean, this is... The only people who do business that way are drug dealers. When have you ever heard of an instance where there's, you know, some sort of deal going on between two states? They don't use cash. You wire the money through treasury bonds or something like that. You don't use cash. The only reason you use cash is if you want to hide the money trail. And now that that money is in Iran and it's totally clean cash in euros and Swiss francs, there will be no tracking it going forwards. This, of course, makes it very easy for Iran, who we all know loves to fund terrorists. That four million, that $400 million, they're not going to spend it on normal government shit. They're going to give it to the people. They're going to give it to people and organizations when they want to keep it completely quiet. When you want to pay somebody a million dollars in a suitcase, or maybe, mm, eh. yeah, you could well, you could probably fit a quarter million dollars in a suitcase, right? But that's all you need to do sometimes with these with these fucking terrorists. That now it's very easy to do. We have facilitated that if that's what they want to do with the money, and of course. That's the most logical thing to do with totally clean, untraceable cash. But what I found really interesting about this was that, you know, the supposed reason that we were giving them $400 million was because we owed Iran a debt from 1979. Like, we're talking 30 years ago. Now, why did we owe Iran $1.6 billion? I, well, I don't think we did. Now, what we we did take $1.6 billion from Iran. At that time, it wasn't the radical Islamic dictator, dictatorship that exists today. Back then, it was the Shah of Iran, who was someone who we put in. And then there's a long story behind that. He should have never been in. It's something that should have never happened, and that's why... Iran is the mess it is today, but that's another story. The point is, is that that government, the government of the Shah of Iran, paid us $1.6 billion for us to supply them with air force and military equipment, a bunch of stuff. So they gave us money, which we still do today. I mean, shit, actually, that same number just happens to be. Saudi Arabia just paid us $1.6 billion for a bunch of, uh, I think it was tanks, which... I just don't think we should be doing that. I don't think we should be engaged in giving money to countries with a human rights record like they have and, you know, they're fucking decimating civilians in Yemen. But that's, that's again, another story. Let's get back. Let's focus again. So in 1979, the government of Iran under the Shah gave us $1.6 We were supposed to give them a bunch of military stuff. Thankfully, that never happened because shortly after that payment was made, the, the Shah was toppled and sent into exile. I'm not sure what they did with him. I think he went into exile somewhere. Anyway, the Ayatollah took over. Now, obviously, when you have this radical Islamic dictatorship that happens to have a bunch of hostages, <laughs> pardon me, that happens to have a bunch of hostages, of course, we're not giving that money back, nor are we giving them any planes or tanks or guns. But this went back and forth through international courts. Somehow, a court in The Hague said that we have to pay the money back, right? 
Now this is years ago, you know? This is, you know, Reagan never paid them back. Bush part one never paid them back. Bill Clinton never paid them back. Bush part two never paid them back. And now, finally, in the last year, in the lame duck session of Obama's presidency, he decides suddenly we should pay them back. Now, what's going to happen if we don't pay them back? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Absolutely nothing. But he wanted to have a way. Listen, I'm not saying it's a bad, it's not a bad thing that he got these hostages free. I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm just saying that we have had a 200 plus year perfect track record. As far as anyone knows, at least we have had a perfect track record of never paying a ransom for Americans that have been hijacked or kidnapped and held by a foreign state. That has always been our policy. And as far as anyone knows, we have never paid a ransom for hijacked or kidnapped Americans. This is a good thing. This makes it much less likely for anyone who gets, anyone who wants to kidnap some Americans and get paid, they know that they're not going to get paid. That is no longer the case because I don't care because I don't care what you or what you or I think about this $400 million payment to Iran. And then suddenly the hostages are freeze. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what it really is. All it matters is the perception for others who are in a position to kidnap Americans. The only thing that matters is their perception. Their perception is that we paid $400 million in totally clean cash that we can't even trace because it's not our money. It's euros and Swiss francs. We, as a government, we have no way to trace that. So they see this happen. Do you think now that the chances are higher or lower or about the same for people who are in a position to kidnap Americans to do it and expect to get paid? Of course, they are going to at least test the theory. It is awful. It is awful. And just one more quick thing, and this, I'm just kind of um, mentioning it because I don't really understand it that well. I'm hoping that maybe somebody who really has a, a, a better understanding of what happened with this um, You know, I have an article, and probably that's the best thing for me to do is just kind of read from it. What this uh, what this is about is there's basically you know when you go to a, like you came you came to listen to the show tonight, right? So you typed into your browser vplivenetwork.com or or whatever. Or if you're listening on SoundCloud, you you know you went to soundcloud.com. You didn't have to punch in a bunch of numbers, you know, which is really where that name, you know, when you go to a website. When you go to Pornhub.com, you're what you're really going to, you're being redirected to 137.236.244.32, right? But it's a lot easier for people to remember just a word than it is a bunch of numbers. So there's a system that does this for you, that does this for everybody, for does this for anyone who uses the internet. Um, and there's a system for that, and that system is owned and administered by us, by the United States, because the United States developed the internet. It was actually the best thing that our government has ever done, I think, because we, we invented the internet, right? So since the invention of the internet, we have always held those keys. Now, for some reason, and this is part of what I don't, I don't understand, so for some reason, this whole, you know, reassignment or assignment, I should say, of simplewordsandnames.com or dot whatever to a complicated series of numbers, we have held the keys on that forever. And now we are giving them up. Let me read from uh, this article. This was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the, batter, the battle over Obama's internet surrender. It's make or break for the internet as we know it. Unless Congress acts this summer, the Obama administration will end U.S. protection of the Internet, handing authoritarian regimes the power 
they have long sought to censor the le- to censor the web <laughs> excuse me to censor the web globally including in the United States the battle lines were drawn in June when the Obama administration backed a plan submitted by the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers or ICANN to free itself in September from the U.S. oversight that has kept the Internet open since its inception. In response, bills were introduced in the Senate and House to block the Obama Internet surrender. The administration falsely spins the U.S. role as largely clerical. In fact, U.S. control over ICANN and the root zone of the Internet through a Commerce Department contract stops China, Russia, and others from interfering with the engineers, developers, and others who operate the open Internet. The administration delayed ending its Internet oversight by a year to find protections, but ICANN's plan falls short. Instead of shielding the Internet from governments, the plan gives governments new powers. Authoritarian regimes would gain greater influence over the ICANN board, and for the first time, governments would have a vote on bylaw changes, removal of the board, and the budget. The Obama administration knows that the new Internet government's plan offers nothing like the open, guaranteed Internet under continued U.S. control. In a, lame defense of, in, the, in a lame defense of the plan, Commerce official Larry Strickling said, at the end of the day, this whole system is built on trust. But trusting China and Russia to leave the Internet open and alone takes, Obama, takes the Obama administration naivete to a new level. The administration justifies unilateral, unilateral su- surrender of U.S. oversight with the contention that authoritarian regimes will reciprocate by refraining from setting up domestic systems separate from the global internet. This is a fantasy. Despite what the, what the, Obama, in, uh, despite what the Obama administration says, Beijing has accelerated the requirement for its own domains for web access in China. Even the administration's hand-picked independent analysis found risks in the plan. Commerce gave a single-source contract to the politically reliable Berkman Center at Harvard, Its analysis includes a citation to warnings in an earlier Internet Age column, I'm sorry, in an earlier earlier Information Age column on how authoritarian regimes would fill the power void left by the U.S., but these concerns were largely without foundation. Note the word largely. The analysts further hedged our appraisal is is necessarily provisional as important aspects of the transition remain to be determined. Amazingly, the Obama administration says it is ready to implement a plan that remains incomplete. ICANN posted key issues for a phase two timed for after the U.S. gives up its contract and loses its leverage. Among the topics to be decided only later is whether ICANN, which is currently based in California, remains under U.S. legal jurisdiction or moves overseas or becomes a part of the U.N., or fully controlled by other governments. Internet governance uh, lawyer Philip Corwin recently wrote a 26-page paper entitled The Irritating Irresolution of ICANN Jurisdiction. Congress should insist on continued U.S. stewardship because of the uncertain legal jurisdiction alone. The government protections in the new plan, weak as they are, can only be enforced if ICANN remains subject to U.S. law. Authoritarian regimes intend to end U.S. legal jurisdiction as quickly as possible. Shifting ICANN's legal status away from the U.S. is a top agenda item for ICANN working group meetings, which are which were planned in Helsinki. Um, I'm just going to skip to the uh, conclusion. Congress has insisted on U.S. oversight to guarantee an uncensored Internet. The only way for authoritarian regimes to obtain the power to censor websites outside of their own countries, including the U.S., would be if the admon- would be if the Obama administration hands it to them. Time is running out for Congress to insist that U.S. continues to protect Americans and everyone around the world who values an open internet. Uh, so, like, we're like a week away from this. Um, here's the thing: it's like, unless this is like totally locked down, that other bad countries can't censor the internet in ways that they cannot 
now? Like, why do it? Or why change anything at all, really? I mean, the system's working perfectly. I mean, despite the fact that the U.S. government does have all this control over how all these domains are resolved, and, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not an expert on the technical stuff, but I, everything's working out really well with the Internet right now. Why make a huge change? And on top of that, having this power, is worth billions and billions of dozens of billions of dollars. I mean, this is like, this is like a huge thing. Why? Like, I don't think we should change anything. I don't think we should give this to anyone, but if at least if we're going to at least get, I don't know, $20 billion for it, but why do it at all? Ask yourself, would Donald Trump ever do this? Would he ever give the keys to the internet away to someone else? No, of course not. And why is Obama doing this? Like, what is just, I guess the, the question is, like, how is this good for us? How is this good for the United States? Like, what is one positive? There is not one single positive. Again, I'm not an expert on the technical stuff, but, like, how does this help us? How is this good for us? Why are we doing it? Okay, folks, like I said, if you haven't already, watch Clinton, watch, watch Clinton Cash on YouTube. And if you are playing with fireworks, I know it's long after July 4th, but there are some fantastic deals right now. So be careful. <laughs>